0: as we come to open Your Word now. We ask that through Your Holy Spirit You'd open our hearts and our minds that we might receive from You what You would have us walk away with today that would impact our lives in such a way to draw us closer together, closer to You, stronger in our witness and testimony for You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I need to uh, let you know that the daily bread for June, July, and August are here. The ones that got set out apparently two weeks ago were, uh, whether they shipped us us a different uh, box or something, but they were the same as the last ones. (laughs) So these are the right ones now. So they're out there in the foyer, on the counter out there, and they're on the table on the other side of the wall. So... Be sure you get those. Remember, feel free to take some extras uh, to people that you know, neighbors or shut-ins, that might enjoy having those as well. We're going to be sharing from the book of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 5. We've been moving around this as to getting started in this, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to start with verses 1 and 2 this morning. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Book of Matthew. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Now, why would I stop there? Well, I just want to get the setting first here. We have Crowds around Jesus. What are these crowds as a result of? Well, we have to go back to the earlier chapters. You've got to remember, John the Baptist has been arrested. He's in prison. As that happened, that transcended, in a sense, transformed what Jesus' ministry was doing. Uh, He now began to proclaim the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God. He began to take on where John left off. And so, in the area of Galilee, around the lake, and up and all around that area, he started preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And as he started to teach, he also healed. And he was healing people from every kind of disease and situation that you can think of. And so, we pick up at the end of chapter 4, verses 23, 4, and 5. And Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Very significant area of of the Palestine area, People were coming from all over to see Jesus, to hear him, and to uh, bring their sick and have him heal them. So Jesus has is, is got huge crowds following him, and that's where chapter 5 picks up. Jesus is looking on a particular day. He sees the crowds. He goes up on a mountain. Now, where it says it goes up on a mountain, it, it's, it's literally the idea of he goes up into some hills. We... You know, it's one of those things where we go someplace, uh, sometimes we'll go and, and somebody say, say, uh, look at the mountains and you see these little hills, you know. Uh, and, and we're used to seeing mountains and canyons and all sorts of things. And the further we go in our state uh, east, we end up in the Rockies and we have the real mountains, if you will, they, and they look at us and say, we're in the foothills. Uh, so with all of that in mind, uh, it's not quite the same as what we would consider but still he he's, he goes to an area where he feels he can teach this crowd and so he moves to this this area and he's he's found a what i would say a suitable place to teach and he says he sat down and the disciples the people following around him who wanted to hear what he had to say not just the the disciples but those following around came in around him And it says he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. Now, if you're like I am, you you see he opened his mouth. Of course he opened his mouth if he's going to teach them. Uh, But it turns out that that is a colloquialism or an idiom of of the, the people in the sense of he is about to say something important. So... When you're recording what somebody has said, you're gonna. If he really, it's it's it's. He opened his mouth to teach them, and what was it to teach? What we traditionally call the Beatitudes is where he starts. The Sermon on the Mount, chapters five, six, and seven. Beatitudes, the first, uh, well, verses three through through twelve, basically of the book of of, of chapter five of the book of Matthew. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He opens his mouth, he begins to teach, and what he begins to teach is, is, is a, a series of blessings that are in, basically they're in contrast to what the typical Hebrews and their teachings would be about the blessings of God. You see, you think about the... the, the well, you could even take it back to Job's um, situation when he lost everything. And his friends came and said, confess your sin. What sin is it you've done? Automatically, this idea that sin. If blessings have been withdrawn from God, there must be sin. Or the man born blind in John chapter 9. What sin? The disciples themselves. What sin did he commit? Or did his parents commit? Or something in the womb he committed a sin of some kind. There must be something wrong because he's blind. The Hebrews basically tied their blessings to material connections And now Jesus turns around and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Very contrary to the Hebrew culture at the time. Certainly contrary to much of the leadership of the Hebrew culture at the time. How were they to understand these? How were they to apply them? They were amazed by this teaching. Listen to how they respond to it at the end of chapter 7 at the the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last two verses, chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. When Jesus Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. By the way, what he's saying is is that he was saying, look, this is the way it is. This, this, this. And he was being absolute. You know how the scribes, especially among themselves, like to talk, was they they liked to debate what do you think and how do you feel about this and which is the worst of the sins and which is the worst of uh, the best of the commandments to keep and if you were ever to be accused of a commandment which commandment would you least like to be accused of or, or most dread being accused of and, and, and they would debate these things to the point where that was even when they asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment they felt they had him trapped because there is no right answer for this and he gives them the biblical answer from, from Deuteronomy to bless the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, to love your neighbor as yourself. They stood back and had nothing to say. They were used to not having absolute... In fact, they had even gotten to the point where they had figured out ways around their their uh, Sabbath laws. You know, if they, if they, if the idea was where you eat is home, and I can only travel so far on the Sabbath, so I'll place food at such and such a place, and 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 then I can walk that far, eat, and now I can walk another distance, and 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 defeat the the whole thing. And they were it's just a crazy time, and Jesus turns around and comes and he says he speaks with authority. He's talking about absolutes. He's saying this is the way it is. In fact, he even gave more specific detail to the law in the sense of even if you break it in your heart and mind, not just the idea of the physical act, you still miss the mark with God. And they were amazed at his teaching. Well, it's the same today. How are we to, to look at this? The Sermon on the Mountain, the Beatitudes. And I was, it was interesting. I, I don't know if you realize how well known the Sermon on the Mount and, and the Beatitudes are outside of Christian circles. But it's it's amazing as to the amount of people that might know something about the Sermon on the Mount and know nothing else about Scripture. Many forums are out there. In fact, you can go online and find some of these to, that discuss the meaning and, and and comparison of other religions and the Sermon on the Mount. quoted by many books, and even, you see it even in movies. and an occasional line, you'll be watching a movie and something about, and the meek shall inherit the earth, or some comment or quote in some way, whether it's derogatory or surprise. And so we see it over and over, really, quite candidly, in in various places, uh, in various ways that it's used. The general conclusion from people outside of the church, and even some insight is that Jesus Christ was a good teacher and a moralist, a moral man who was bringing a sense of morality to a, a, a world that had lost it. I had several classes when I was uh, in, in college, uh, secular college, that, uh, where Scripture was brought up in various ways. We had wisdom literature as a class, and that included proverbs and the book of Job, along with other uh, types of, 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 of material from other religions and other eras, and 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 places, locations, and it was looked at as, as wise sayings, things about Jesus, uh, and especially in my I, my wife and I both experienced the same. Uh, teacher with this uh, in history west I think I've mentioned it before in here the, the history of Western civilization and the, the guy's picture of Jesus was extremely harsh actually he said look at all the history after the fact of Jesus here's what Jesus stood for he was a good teacher he was a moral man and people took it and ran with it and and destroyed and 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 went out in the name of God killed and murdered and 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 had all these persecutions and things. Unfortunately, there's some truth to that. There are people who, in the name of God, have done horrendously ugly, mean things. But it is interesting to see the world as a whole say, good teacher, moral man, in a sense, accepting the reality of a historical Jesus. And they end up sitting around just like the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time trying to figure out what the best way to look at these moral standards that he was talking about. Coming to no final conclusions, a lot of people will turn around and say yeah, they're ideals. They'll look at the commandments and say, "What?" I think Phil Scriber is the one that does this all the time. He says, uh, the ten, it's not the Ten Suggestions, it's the Ten Commandments. Uh, but this idea of just, well, there are a bunch of ideals. Here's, here's what we should be striving for. I'm going to suggest to you that the Sermon on the Mount is not a series of ideals. It is a series of commands, uh, and, and it's why we call it the Christian manifesto, if you will, in a sense of this is what God wants from us. And there's some tough ones in there, no no doubt. The toughest one is is sometimes one that's hardly even talked about. Verse 48 of chapter 5. Verse 48 of chapter 5. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, the first thing you want to know is... A definition for perfect, please. No evil. No darkness. Now what do we do? I'm in serious trouble. I've got a statement that comes from Jesus Christ who says, I need to be perfect as God is perfect. Well, first I'm going to have to understand something about God's perfection. I'm going to have to understand something about God's Word to get get a hold of this. And I have to have something to work with. You realize, and we've talked about this many times, the Bible is God-breathed. Meaning that it is God's Word breathed into the writers. It's God's plan how he would intervene in a fallen world and restore peace between his children and himself in establishing his kingdom. It's a set of absolutes, not suggestions. And, again, be ye holy as I am holy is an absolute requirement for anyone who wants to participate in God's plan and God's kingdom. Period. And all I could put here in my my notes was impossible. And then it was one of those things that just kind of comes together as you think about it. This is impossible. Yes. You've got it. Impossible. It is impossible. You've got it. You can't get there, Bob. You're helplessly hopelessly lost. The conclusion to this is, God, if you don't save me, I'm done. Period. And as you come to the conclusion that you need a Savior even to take any step in any direction towards God, you release, you confess, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, your Savior, the gospel message starts to open up. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. You begin your walk with Jesus. And it's impossible to walk with with Jesus without Jesus in you. You can't walk even like Jesus without Jesus in you. We need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When you first confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, God puts a gift in you. The gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that happens afterwards. It's as you confess, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes and you begin to understand the Word of God. The Bible tells us very distinctly that without the Holy Spirit, you will not understand the Word of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two, looking at the uh, about the eleventh verse. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So all one also also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. That should be obvious. You look at me. And you've got some opinions about me based on things that you've seen me do. Some of you have more accurate pictures than others of who I am. But generally speaking, your opinion is based on what you've seen. It's not it's not what you know about me in here though. There are things that are uh, that are in my thinking and in my life that you know nothing about. And it's what he's trying to say is the only one that really knows your mind is is you. You're the only one. And as the same for God. The only one that really knows the mind of God is the Spirit of God. And so he makes that statement. For he who knows a person's thoughts except who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We've been given the Spirit of God to become ones who begin to understand, therefore, what? The mind of God, the way God thinks, His Word, and and to understand what He is thinking when He says it. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Before I was a Christian, I read the Word of God. First off, obviously, for some of my classes. We actually had copies of... of The scriptures, we read them. Uh, I had scripture read to me growing up from my grandmother. Uh, The opportunities uh, that were presented to me, some of the things that I had learned in in college and the arguments about Christianity, I used with other people as they came to share their faith with me. I would say, Yeah, but, and I would say, and find some negative avenue and uh, take an offensive posture with them. I hadn't a clue. I, quite candidly, I thought anybody could read the Word of God. In fact, in reading the Word of God, what I came to conclusion was that there had to be a tremendous, and, and this is, Where I was coming from, there had to be a tremendous hoax of some kind going on in order to get people to believe in an empty tomb and say Jesus is alive. God starts to open my eyes. You've heard my testimony many times. And The next thing I know, I'm challenged to read the Word of God just receiving the idea that they believed what they were writing. That's pretty innocent. I'll try it. I didn't understand it. I still couldn't figure out the resurrection. But you know, it became obvious to me that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John believed what they were writing. They weren't trying to pull one over. But then I devoted the next year and a half to trying to figure out why. And I finally came to that conclusion that... And I believe it's because the Holy Spirit was was now taking charge. He was opening my eyes and, and, and assisting me at every turn to come to the conclusion that there was an empty tomb. And if it hadn't been empty, the Romans and the Hebrews would not stood aside and said... and accepted this this story, they would have brought a dead body out if there was an empty tomb. And a stolen body just didn't work with me. How in the world would trained guards from a Roman dispatch group with their swords and all who were supposedly asleep... (laughs) know that the disciples stole the body and saw it. You know, I guess woke up at the last minute. And couldn't outrun them as they carried a dead body to make sure that, 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 not, you know, that it was restored to the, the situation the way it was restored to the way it was supposed to be the body back in the tomb. Finally, at that point where you say, God, you must be who you say you are. I don't understand it all, but open my eyes. Acts chapter two, very familiar with you with us. That Peter preaches the, the first sermon after on the day of Pentecost. And at the conclusion of the sermon in verse 37, the people are saying, What must we do? Jesus and he says, Repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three thousand people that day did. They were added to the church. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 26, that He was going to send a Helper. He was going to leave, but He would send a Helper, and this Helper was going to help uh, help us to understand. He would teach us, and He would bring back to memory things that had happened. And you realize, as you read the Gospel of John, especially chapter two, where He's talking about the temple and it says, "In three days I will rise it up again." The temple rise up again and stuff. And they're saying, "We didn't understand it at the time, but we understand it now that He was talking about His body." Well, why do they understand it? Why do they, how did they come together? The Holy Spirit. And other situations that, that are mentioned in Scripture like that. Jesus promised the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to help us, just to draw him into him, to, into close to him, to understand his word, to become stronger, to have the power to live a life that, suits, that follows him. That surrenders to the wisdom of God and rejects the wisdom of man. It's really the dilemma, isn't it? Man has all of his ideas, all the things that that he comes up with, and and we can, and, and he comes up with ways to try to explain what God has done. Obviously, we have this battle constantly with creation and evolution. Like I've shared many times, I'll never forget Dr. Blodgett in my high school years. I don't, to this day, I I don't know whether he was a Christian or not, but he certainly believed in uh, in in an intelligent design. Because he says, and this was 1966, he said, the deeper science goes, the more it's going to point to a creator. The more it understands. And back then, we didn't understand anything like we understand now. Have you have you noticed how funny it is that in, in, when you start to talk about uh, uh, evolution, if you go back to the books of the '50s, it was it was hundreds of thousands and millions and, and millions and hundreds of millions of years, as they were talking about things. And, and in the '60s, with new understanding of various things, it started becoming billions of years in order for evolution to work. And, and then it became billions and billions of years for evolution to work the more science we understand the more they have to add years to to get the possibility of of some accident happening and they still can't come up with it and they can't they can't point to it and the reason is is that it's not there i always believed in evolution until i came to the scriptures and god opened my eyes to creation it took me a while I was trying desperately to to shuffle evolution and creation together. At some point along the evolutionary tree of man, God breathed into him. It's not what it says. After a while, you come to this point where you realize it's what he said that happened. The wisdom of man pushed away as the wisdom of God takes its place. For all who hear, believe, and confess the Word of God and and the Son of God as their Savior, the Holy Spirit takes up residence. Ephesians tells us that we have the Holy Spirit as as a seal, as a guarantee of what God has done and is going to do in us. And now, you can read the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins to shape our thoughts and transform our minds and change our priorities. You see, what I'm trying to suggest to you is the Sermon on the Mount is going to be worthless as, uh, as a piece of literature or any other way of looking as a piece of morality or, or a good teacher's words. It's going to be worthless without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit along inside you as you read it. And I'm going to suggest to you that not just the, the 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 reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but prayer as you read it. Any part of the scripture, prayer saying, God, through your Holy Spirit, illumine me, bright, lighten, give me light, understanding of what your word is saying and how it applies to my life. People ask, you know, how often do you know should we be uh going to church and this type of stuff especially right after they become a Christian you realize that if you uh, go to Alcoholics Anonymous okay and, and they're they're based on the idea of changing a way of life and changing habits okay their recommendation is when you first decide that you really are an alcoholic and you can't do it on your own you need a divine intervention you need 90 days 90 meetings Can you imagine if I told uh, somebody that just accepted the Lord, now 90 days, 90 meetings. Think about it. We've got people in the world sometimes far more committed to finding out where they stand with things than we... You know, 90 days, 90 meetings, I don't know. Isn't that about the total of them? That's more than than, than once a week. (laughs) You know, That's more than a year's worth of meetings in, in, you know, I don't know. Uh, I thought Christians went to church on Sunday mornings. I'm going to suggest to you that we should have 90 days and 90 meetings, but you can do that through the Word of God. Isn't that amazing? Reading the Word of God daily in prayer. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you A.W. Tozer's position It doesn't matter what you read, whether it's the newspaper, the Greek classics, or the Word of God. You should read it in prayer and on your knees. He used that picture figuratively. He knew that you wouldn't always be on your knees reading these things. But what he was trying to say was in an attitude of prayer, even when you're reading non-Christian stuff, it should be in an attitude of prayer and asking God to protect you and to reveal to you the things of His kingdom. And it's amazing, even, even what you see, and you, it's, it's a whole different way of looking at things. You start to understand what it means to be in the world, but not of it. In fact, you begin, you begin to long for, for a change in your life. For the kingdom of heaven... To take root in your life in such a way that you start looking ahead. I, I and I know some people will get troubled by it. My wife especially, because I'll say one one day, you know how how you know one day at a time, and what's my other phrase, one day closer. Now my wife doesn't like to hear that because I've had several situations in my life where I've been very close, and so it makes her think that way. And and so I'm cautious about how. She understands what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that I long for the kingdom of God. It's Maranatha. Come soon, Lord Jesus. That was never in my heart before. The Holy Spirit brings understanding. He brings, brings desire. He brings strength. He brings power to our lives to live for Christ. Step by step, line by line, precept by precept, we start to become something different than we were. People who saw me early in my Christian walk and my family were waiting to see when it would fall apart. What is it that's in it for Bob? When I started doing weddings in my, in my, in my family, my uncle asking, and you've heard this before, my uncle asking, was it legal? What's in it for Bobby? It wasn't until my dad's funeral. That I'd finished preaching, that he came up and said, You really believe this stuff, don't you? Begin to change, our priorities change. Things that were important to before you were a believer to become unimportant to you. One of the things that happened for me, and it was kind of I didn't set out to do it, but I really, Kathy, and I you know, we're 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 young, married. We've got you know uh, a child. We're 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 just just entering into our relationship with Christ, and we started going to a church, and we found out that as you you know you go to the church, you get to find out more information and understanding, and and, and you get you can get teaching and you know and even counseling. We even went to a child's uh, teaching raising seminar type thing, and got some insight as to how to to manage a strong-willed child, and it had nothing to do with uh, the book Dare to Discipline. It was interesting, uh, but but the whole the whole thing being that, that it was changing our priorities. I used to autocross. I don't know how many of you are familiar with autocross. How many uh, are you familiar with Jim Canna, horse Jim Cannas, where they race around barrels against the clock time time against the clock? Well, this is similar. You race around pylons in a car against the clock one at a time, and you have different classes of cars and different you know groups and stuff like this, and I, I had a, uh, initially I had a, a TR3, 1962 uh, two TR3, and then I had a 1963 Sunbeam Alpine, and I loved doing that. Saturday would be the, the qualifying, and Sunday would be the, the finals. And if I could find one anywhere geographically close to where I lived, I would be there. All of a sudden, you skip a few Sundays. This is no joke. All of a sudden, I didn't intend it to happen. It just was one of those things. My car is up on blocks for when it's the season's off, and I and I've got it covered and, and all this kind of stuff. It never came off the blocks that year. It was something I didn't do anymore. Is it sinful to do that? Absolutely not. No, Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying... And, I, and there's a number of Christian people that I, I, that I met after I became a Christian that I started to see other Christians that were part of it. Don't get me wrong. It was just that my priorities changed. Certain things that I wanted to do... I, I, being at church was important to me. Priorities change transformation starts to happen the love of God for us and in us begins to reveal itself in such a way that all I could write down is what an adventure I went from not sure what life was for to a quest two major quests I am on in my life one to know God as much as I possibly can The second one is to know my wife as much as I possibly can. God is the infinite creator of the universe. I believe we will spend eternity knowing God and learning about him. My wife is created in his image. And I am still, after 45 years, learning. Some things have changed. Her favorite foods aren't the same. Her favorite colors aren't the same.
1: Amazingly,
0: she's pretty much the same size as when I married her. But uh, I'm not. But I want to know her. I I so. Are you familiar with a guy by the name of Brother Andrew? Wrote in the in in, in, the, in the sixteen fifteen hundreds, I think it is. But anyway, one of the things that he wrote was you know they had he was a monk and and, he, and monks had to police the the grounds you know picking up anything that needed, was out of the place that it should be and it was just automatic. You're walking along and you're in the pathway. All the straw was to be in the in, in the garden side. If you saw a piece of straw, you were to stop, pick it up, and put it into the garden as as kind of a penance you know. Trying to please God attitude. So, understanding that, his desire was he wishes he could, he said, I wish I could pick up a piece of straw and put it in its place without God knowing it was me who had done it. Do you get it? He was wishing he could put a smile on God's face without God realizing it was him who had negotiated and had done it. Impossible, right? Yes. But I, it transfers. That was the way he treated people. He wanted to be able to do something that would put a smile on their face and happiness in their life without them realizing it came from him. And I realized that's that's fun because if you can do that with your wife or your husband, where you're, for no other reason than to see a smile and to bless them. And so now, you know... I'm on multiple adventures thanks to Christ in my life. And I have had ups and downs. I look at what has happened in South South Carolina, First Emanuel Church. And you are Blown away that anything like that can happen. Although I have to confess, I'm no longer surprised what man can do to man, man's inhumanity to man, all through modern history and in my lifetime alone. But still, one of those places that you want to be safe is church. You're right about the message this morning. There was something that was happening in that church this morning. been happening all week. And that was that nine families have been able to come to a place where they said, I forgive. Some people are going to say, ah, you know, only words. Sometimes it starts that way but with the intent in the heart to be true, to be before the throne of God and say, I forgive. God, cause it to be real in me, in my in my deepest feelings. And people were saying, and it was obvious that, that people were saying, we don't understand this. We just don't get it. We don't understand how this works. You have the announcers kind of troubled, not sure what to do. Of course, they were doubly troubled this morning because... They had an agenda that was given to them. And they said, in a few minutes, the pastor will preach. About half an hour later. In a few minutes, the pastor will preach. (laughs) Later on, in a few minutes, the pastor will preach. Uh, They weren't used to Southern Gospel churches. uh, But when he did, and I didn't get to hear all of it, he said, they're confused. They don't get it. They don't understand. I thought it was so tied with what I was going to say this morning. Why don't they get it? Why don't they? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. And he put it this way They don't know my daddy. They don't know my daddy. They don't know our daddy. If they knew him, they'd get it. You see, it's the same message. If you know God, the Holy Spirit's in you, you get it. And so, as we come to the Beatitudes, the first thing we have to be sure of is that we know that we're in a walking relationship, in a working relationship with God, that we have the Holy Spirit in us. And then that we pray that the Holy Spirit will enlighten us. Or it's just going to be some good teaching with some moral words. And you won't get it. So, that's why I wanted to start with this this morning. Jesus opened his mouth and taught. He starts to teach, and and I was thinking, uh, Oswald Chambers, uh, in, in his devotional books, in, in 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 his daily devotionals, one of the things was was talking about the idea of, of Jesus must be your savior before he can be your teacher. as I was, in fact, I was I was reading that this week. Jesus must be your savior before he can be your teacher. And you must have the Holy Spirit before the teaching of Jesus will be real to you. And and God works in a concert of ways to make it happen. And 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 today could be that I I I am cautious to ever assume that everybody has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that I'm preaching to, even if I've known you for years. And and I never was that way. Until I met a gentleman, 84 years old. Um, We met on a bus to Mexico. He was a retired dentist. And he was going in with a clinic that I was going with to do some work in Mexicali. It's really interesting. He got my attention because he was talking about his high school teacher. I want to see how God orchestrates things. He was talking about his high school teacher. And uh, I couldn't help it over here. And I turned over to him and I said, Gosh, uh, Carl, that sounds, sounds just like my grandfather. He said, Oh, no, it could be your grandfather. He, I'm talking about uh, Art Hapgood in, in Lompoc, California. My grandfather. He went to school with my dad. We caught up on old times. And then he started to share his testimony. He says, yeah, I've only been a Christian for a few months. I've been in church all my life. I was an elder on the board. But Lance Anderson started being a part-time teacher, in our, uh, an interim pastor in our church. And he preached one Sunday, and he says, I realized I had never heard the gospel message that way. And I've never seen Jesus that way. And he said, I realized I've never accepted Jesus. Eighty-four years old, most of his life in the church, leadership on a board. Since then, I don't assume. So this morning, as we prepare our hearts for communion, and by the way, you've got to put this into perspective here. Because of what Christ has done, we can cry out to Him and say, I know that I'm helplessly, hopelessly lost. Save me. But we can also, even in our salvation, even in our walk with Him, even if, you know, with that sense of security of saying, do I know that I know that I know that I'm, I've got Him? We're supposed to rest with that confidence. I know that I am saved. Nothing is going to separate me from the love of God. And I just want to suggest to you this morning that if you've had any things in your seasons of your lives that has interfered with that confidence, this morning is a good morning to pray about. And so while we're we're sharing communion, as, as we pass out the emblems, the music is played, if you have a need that you'd like to come up and have prayed for, feel free to come up. And uh, and I'll pray with you. And uh, just uh, thank you for letting me speak this morning. i ask the worship team to come and the men to come and pass out the communion, please. All that we have talked about was purchased at one point, one time. Right at the perfect time, according to God's Word. you got to understand and if you guys, anybody's here going through any trials or tribulations, God is never late. He is never late. I he's, I have to confess, I'm frequently not on His schedule. I'm a very anxious person a lot of times. But He is never late late. And at the perfect time, Scripture says, He went to the cross, He died for us. Even while we were still sinners, He showed His love by going to the cross for us. And on the cross, He said, it is finished. Everything that needs to be taken care of for you to be in the kingdom of God is done. There is nothing for you to bring to the table opened your eyes as I've come into your life, as you've confessed believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the living Son of God, it has been done and paid for. You cannot earn it with good deeds. Why would a Christian bother? <laughs> There's people that think that's that, you know, well, why would you bother to be, you know, just go on living like you did before then? if Once you're in Christ and stuff, you can just do anything you want, right? That's not the point. The point is he comes in in such a way that it changes the way you think. It changes the desires of your heart. And you end up singing songs like, Give me Jesus. You can have the world, but give me Jesus. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, the meal that he shared with his disciples, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke the bread and he passed it to the disciples. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And as we look at it, we realize that means the body of God incarnate, God incarnate, came in the flesh. He really came in the flesh. He was a man. He had to, in order to be able to say it was finished and done, he had to come as a man. Every time we take the flesh, we do this remembering him. And not just remembering that he went to the cross, but remembering he emptied himself. All that goes with that, that's what's tied to this. They asked ask that as often as we would do this, we do it remembering Him. And as a man truly in the flesh, he could experience death. But it required the spilling of His blood, the pouring out of His blood. Life is in the blood, according to Scripture. And so he said, this is to remind you of my blood. He took this cup at the end of the meal. He said, as often as we drink it, we're to do it in remembrance of him until he comes again. It has purchased the covenant of grace. Father, again we come this morning to pray, to, to say thank you. we want to say thank you in such a way, Lord, that is is consistent with what you've done for us. And so the word has to have a bigger meaning than just thank you in the way we normally use it. We come to you with grateful hearts knowing that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves in order to open the kingdom of God to us. Not just for a moment, not just for a day, not for a week, but eternally. You say... In Your Word, absolutely nothing can separate us from Your your love. Thank You. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank You. We are joint heirs with Jesus and we will share His inheritance. Thank You. And it's all because of the words, it is finished on the cross. Thank You. We ask, Lord, now that as we also recognize not only your death and your burial, but we recognize your resurrection as the proof that you are who you say you are. The tomb was empty. You are alive. You are at the right hand of God. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And We ask, Lord, that you would go with us, causing us to be stronger every day. Closer every day. Not just to what you're going to do, but closer to you every day. Put us on that quest to know you better. And again, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.